Welcome birders, this is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. This episode will be a little different. I just had a surgery recently, I had my right hip replaced, and so I'm not really up to sitting in one place for an hour or so and having a formal interview sort of session with somebody, so I'm going to do a solo episode that I can record in segments. It'll make it easier, and I think it'll be fun. This is also going to be different because this episode is not so much targeted at the avid birder, although I hope it'll be a little bit fun for an avid birder. It's targeted at friends and family of avid birders. Uh, I hope if you're a birder and you're listening to this and you think it might be fun for someone who is not a birder or is a beginning birder or is a family member of yours, might be interested in listening. So refer them on to it if you think it might be something that they like. What I'm going to do is I'm going to choose five really common birds in the United States and I'm going to talk about them. I'm going to talk about them the way a birder thinks about them, maybe a little bit of uh, goofy science stuff about them, some interesting little tidbits, and uh, hopefully it'll be something of interest to people who kind of get a feel for how birders think and the, the little trivia that they get into. So we're going to begin with Canada Goose. I chose Canada Goose because it's big, it's easy to identify, almost everyone in the United States sees them somewhere near where they live even if it's only at a, a little city park or county park, but they are historically and still primarily a migratory bird. Sigurd F. Olson wrote about them in 1956 in a, in a little prose, so I'm going to quote from that. Suddenly, out of the north came the sound I had been waiting for, a soft, melodious gabbing that swelled and died and increased in volume until all other sounds were engulfed by its clamor. Far in the blue I saw them, a long skein of dots, undulating like a floating ribbon, pulled toward the south by an invisible cord tied to the point of its V. That's by S.F. Olson in 1956. We've all seen honkers, Canada geese, flying overhead, typically in a V, and they do sort of undulate when they fly a little bit. Uh, And when you look at them in the air, they're pretty easy to identify, especially if you hear them there. Honk, 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 uh, honkers are pretty easy to identify. That also helps show Uh, differentiate them from cackling geese, uh, which are like their smaller cousins, uh, recently or in the last several years split into a separate species that have a shorter bill and a shorter neck and are overall smaller birds. They have separate breeding populations and are clearly a separate species. But almost no matter where you live in the U.S., with the possible exceptions of some of the very dry parts of southeast California, Nevada, uh, some parts of West Texas, and maybe some of southern Florida, uh, you'll see Canada geese on a fairly regular basis. A lot of Canada geese have adapted to be fairly resident, in other words, not to migrate. Uh, They tend to hang out at city parks and golf courses and other places where they are just pooping machines. So I thought I'd talk about goose poop. Geese are one of the few birds uh, that can extract enough nutrients from grass to pretty much get by for a lot of the year. Very few birds eat grass and leaves. Birds are metabolic machines. They need high energy food and lots of it because they fly and they have super high metabolisms. They have incredibly efficient cardiorespiratory systems and digestive tracts, but they can't get by eating stuff with low nutritional value like grass very much. Most birds, you'll notice, eat high nutritional value foods. They eat seeds, they eat nuts, they eat grains, things with a fair amount of protein, a lot of nutritional value for the amount of 
food stuff that they ingest. Grass and leaves, uh, needles off trees, they are pretty much high cellulose, low nutritional value, hard to digest foods. So most birds don't eat that sort of thing. A lot of the birds that do eat that sort of thing don't fly very much. You'll notice grouse, uh, birds like that, uh, that eat the needles off uh, trees and things like that. They don't fly around very much. They'll have a burst of flight here and there, but they mostly walk around, fairly sedentary, don't use a lot of uh, metabolic energy and movement. Geese, on the other hand, are big flyers. They fly all over, the, all over the place, so they need to have lots of nutrition. Well, they have a special adaptation that allows them to eat huge quantities of low nutritional value grass and things like that, and have adapted to be able to efficiently extract the nutritional value from that while pooping out vast amounts of the poorly digestible cellulose-based products. If you look at goose poop, it's basically a tubular structure. Canada goose poop is a tubular structure, inch and a half, two inches long, maybe three-quarter, uh, three-eighths or half an inch thick, and it looks like a whole bunch of grass stuck together with something. Well, that's what it is, a whole bunch of grass stuck together with something. What these geese do is constantly graze. They eat grass, they eat grass, they eat grass. It goes through the digestive system, through the crop, through the stomach, gets ground up somewhat, the little fragments that have uh, the more nutritional value, they are portioned off just past the end of the small intestine into an enlarged section of the proximal, the near end, uh, upper end of the large intestine called uh, the cecum. People have a cecum. It's where our appendix comes off. It's where the small bowel empties into the large bowel doesn't serve any tremendously important functions in general in terms of nutrition extraction, we don't think, except for maybe vitamin B12. Uh, but anyway, uh, in geese, it's an enlarged uh, sac that the nutritional value part of the grass, small pieces are broken off, go in, and a fermentative process using bacteria, those uh, nutritional value products are uh, broken down and absorbed into the, into the bloodstream. And the vast majority of the poorly digestible part of the grass is just passed right on through the rest of the large bowel and pooped out. Uh, so geese have a, evolved a mechanism for, instead of eating a small amount or a moderate amount of high nutritional value foods, they eat vast amounts of low nutritional value foods, portion off the parts that they can manage to get enough energy out of, digest those, and the rest they just pass on out. So geese are pooping machines. Pretty amazing. But in by doing that, they manage to get all the nutritional value they need, all the energy they need for lots of sustained flight, to get fat and to store up the, the foodstuffs they need for migration, and do it all while eating low nutritional value food, a special adaptation of geese. So the next time you wonder, how do these geese make so much poop? Now you know. They have to eat lots and lots and lots of grass and poop out lots and lots of lots of uh, poorly digestible grass in order to get the little bit of nutritional value out of the parts of the grass that they can digest. So now you know all you need to know about goose poop. Anyway, uh, geese are pretty amazing creatures. Like swans, they mate for life. Uh, so if you've seen the ballet or the stories, the swan song, they uh, mate for life. And as long as uh, both, uh, both members of a, a, a goose couple are paired up, they tend to continue to uh, reproduce uh, monogamously. 
they have usually two to eight eggs, uh, and uh, they don't really reproduce till about their third year usually. Typically when geese are born, they hang out with their parents for the first uh, summer and winter, and then uh, kind of on their own for the next year, and then the third summer, uh, they will usually pair up and reproduce. Although I think some of them may in the second summer. Geese can be really big. They can get up to nine kilograms or about 20 pounds. So they're a big bird and they've been uh, very popular among hunters. And thankfully, uh, hunters have been some of our best conservationists with the Duck Stamp Program and Ducks Unlimited have been terrific at uh, maintaining wetland areas. Uh, and so we can thank uh, Canada geese and mallards and a few other ducks that duck hunters get their dinner from uh, for conservation of a lot of the uh, wetland areas that have still, uh, still been preserved in the major flyways. You'll all recognize Canada goose uh, at a glance, but here are some of the, uh, the basic things that you might uh, have questions about. Next is the name. Canada goose. Why not Canadian goose? You know, a birder will be quick to correct you, or some birders will be quick to correct you if you say you see a Canadian goose. No, that's an American goose. It's a Canada goose living in America. Well, this is my take on why there are a lot of birds named Canada as part of their common English name, and I don't think any birds named America as part of their common English name. Canada is a country. It's a pretty specific place. Canada, north of the United States, northern half or so of North America, pretty specific place. So saying something is a Canada bird tells a lot about where it's from. Canada goose, they do uh, breed largely in the northern half of North America, although across, certainly across a big swath of the United States too, but broadly across Canada. And so they're called Canada goose. We have Canada warbler, we have Canada jay. There are three or four uh, common English named birds that start with Canada. There are none that start with America. And that's because America is not the United States of America. It's the Americas, the whole Western Hemisphere. North America, Central America, South America are all part of the Americas. So saying that something is America this or America that is really nonspecific. It doesn't tell you whether it's breeding in Chile or Canada or Costa Rica. It doesn't really say much about it. So my take on it is that saying something is American like American Widgeon or American Redstart or American Robin, simply tells you that it's a new species, uh, not a bird that breeds in the old world, but it's from the new world, it's part of the Americas. So that's my take on the name. So it's Canada goose, not Canadian goose, uh, and it's lots of Canadian geese are really American geese. Uh, so that's uh, my take on that. So that's it for Canada goose. We're gonna go on to the next species, mallard. Mallard is another big waterfowl that's widely dispersed across uh, the United States. Almost everyone knows a green-headed duck that lives in the duck pond at the lake uh, or the city pond or wherever uh, and is a very common species throughout most of North America. The only places you have trouble finding uh, mallard in North America is way down in southern Florida and next to Mexico in certain places. They're famous for uh, being the primary duck that almost all domestic fowl uh, were derived from, uh, that along with Muscovy duck. And uh, those are the two uh, ducks that were domesticated and uh, have been bred and interbred and lots of different breeds of mixed up park ducks and breeding a stock have come from them. Birders often call the odd looking ducks with city park as park ducks or mixed up mallards. Uh, and that's because they've interbred with Muscovy ducks or interbred with 
other domestic ducks and can look pretty strange. Typically they have a head that's a little bit bigger or swollen, a thicker neck, and just a splotchy sort of coloration in the males. Uh, one thing you'll notice on mallards, the, the wild mallards, is that the male's a little bit bigger than the female, a little bit larger bill, a little bit longer wings and tail. And if you live in places with closely related species like black duck or model duck or now Mexican duck, you want to learn to tell them apart. Well, it's not easy. Uh, sometimes the females are, you know, frankly, really, really difficult to tell apart. But with a male, uh, there are a couple of things uh, that can be helpful. First of all, the central rectices, the central tail feathers on a male mallard are curved. So they kind of uh, upcurved. And if you look closely at the tail, you'll see that. It's a really cute little curve on the up uh, part of the middle of the tail. That's one of the uh, tip-offs that a duck you're seeing is either a mallard or has some mallard blood in it. It's one of the few, uh, it's really the only of those mixed up species of uh, mallard, the mallard complex as it's called, that has that feature. They also tend to be big-headed. I had a friend who used to call mallards big-headed duck because when you see them in flight, they do look like they've just got a head that's a little bit bigger than other dabbling ducks in flight. One of the reasons mallards are all over the place in broad areas of the northern hemisphere is that they're generalists. They can eat almost anything. You obviously know they can eat white uh, Wonder Bread uh, because you'll see somebody feeding them that at the park or stale Wonder Bread. You also think of their primary source of nutrition as grain, and that's certainly true. But our wild birds eat mostly animal food during the breeding season. Things like insects, larvae, snails, freshwater shrimp, earthworms. And in the non-breeding season, eat a lot more vegetable matter like seeds and aquatic plants, grain crops, that sort of thing. When you look at female mallards, one thing to look at is their bill. Uh, they generally have a fairly orange bill with a variable amount of black, mostly in the middle. And I, I tend to find that helpful because when you look at gadwall or other similar sort of female birds around here in Washington, the black it tends to extend more out to the edge of the bill. So that can be a helpful thing too. Uh, the speculum or the little colored part of the trailing edge of the wing that you can see in a bird that's sitting usually, you certainly can see it in flight, but even in a bird that's sitting, is blue in mallards. And it has a white edge on that blue, both on the on the front and back of the, of the speculum. So that's a little bit helpful too. So mallards are another bird that uh, if you take a close look at, they are really a beautiful bird. Uh, and they're so common that birds just all poo-poo, it's just a mallard. But take a close look, they are a gorgeous bird and are another uh, wonderful asset that we have here in North America that you can find almost everywhere. The next species I'm going to talk about is wild turkey. Wild turkey uh, is a cool bird. Uh, they are the biggest gallinaceous bird that we have in North America. There are only two species of turkey in the turkey genus. The turkey genus is Melagris, and we have our wild turkey, Melagris gaiapova, and we have the wild turkey from the Yucatan Peninsula, Belize, and part of Colombia, Melagris ocellata. Wild turkey is a story in itself. I did a, a Thanksgiving episode uh, of this podcast uh, talking about the uh, near hunting to extirpation and capture and rebreeding and reintroduction 
protocols that have happened across the United States, so that now wild turkey may exist in bigger numbers than it ever did, even in pre-Columbian times. It's certainly in more places than it was in pre-Columbian times. There are, there are wild turkey in Hawaii now. Uh, they're in places where they uh, were not native, and they were reintroduced or introduced to a lot of these places primarily by hunters who are interested because they're a very challenging and desirable bird to uh, shoot for food. Uh, so wild turkeys, they were a staple of the diet of Eastern Native Americans at the time of the European settlers, and they were almost hunted to extirpation. But it's a really cool story of how they figured out how to capture them, how they figured out how to breed them, how they figured out how to reintroduce them successfully. Uh, and again, check out that episode. It's from the last Thanksgiving episode. I'll put a link to that in the podcast notes. Our wild turkey is the source of almost all of the domestic turkeys that are raised throughout the world as a huge food source. Domestic turkeys from around the time of Christ in Mesoamerica were domesticated and were used as a food source, and that they were brought back to Europe by the, by the Spanish settlers and have become a huge worldwide food source that all originated from wild turkey. If you look at some of the domestic turkeys that on a turkey farm now, you would almost have trouble thinking they're related because they've been interbred and specifically modified uh, through specialized breeding processes to be this incredibly fat, almost flightless uh, bird with breasts that are so large they can't even fly and wild turkeys are actually a, a pretty powerful flyer for short distances they prefer to walk they tend to get around by walking most of the time but they do roost in trees and uh, when you hear them gobble they gobble better from trees than they do from the ground there's uh, something uh, when i was out with a heather friend of mine who we heard a turkey gobble and she said shot gobble we're like, what is she talking about, shock gobble? I thought she said shot gobble. I think she meant shock gobble. Shock gobble is an interesting phenomenon of uh, tom turkeys. If a tom turkey among a group of other male turkeys gobbles, there's almost an instant uh, gobble within a second of other toms around. It's just like a, they can't help it. It's just a reflex thing. When one gobbles, another one gobbles. And things like slamming a door or shooting a gun uh, will cause a gobble a lot of times. So it's called a shock gobble, and it's kind of a cool phenomenon. Identifying wild turkeys is really uh, not difficult. Uh, the, really, the two uh, identification issues are trying to figure out what subspecies of wild turkey they are, and I'm not going to try to go into that here, but if you look at the blog post associated with the Thanksgiving episode on the birdbanner.com site, you'll see photographs and a discussion of the, the six major subspecies. But in practice, a lot of times it's uh, differentiating them from certain breeds of domestic turkey. There are some domestic turkeys that look sort of like uh, wild turkey, but, but you can tell if you, if you get a decent look. A couple of other little cool tidbits about wild turkeys. Bailey, in 1956, published an article on being able to tell the sex of turkey droppings. Uh, <laughs> kind of crazy, uh, but in case you're wondering, male feces are usually J-shaped, whereas a female turn, uh, form two or three spirals. So if it's J-shaped, it's a male dropping. If it's spiral-shaped, it's uh, probably a female dropping. Another little tidbit is that uh, male wild turkeys don't look like a fully grown adult until about their third year. But female wild turkeys look essentially like an adult by the end of their first fall, by their first what we call preformative molt. A lot of birds have a, a special molt. They're born in a juvenile plumage. And then shortly after that, before the winter comes, usually they go through another molt that chains them to look not like a juvenile bird, uh, but more like an adult bird. Well, first fall, uh, 
female wild turkeys look pretty much like an adult, whereas a male doesn't get its uh, full waddle and the whole uh, soft parts around the head and neck until its third year. Turkeys are pretty sedentary. They tend to live in one place all year round, and they tend to walk most places, although they're good flyers for short distances. They can survive in incredibly cold environments, although male turkeys probably have a little bit better survival uh, in a really cold winter and a prolonged fast than females because of their larger size. Uh, females, the first winter, have a higher survival rate because they are more uh, developed by their first fall and better able to make it through their first winter. So it seems like the uh, gender uh, selection works out that way. They, they can fast up to 19 days at times. Kind of cool. Well, enough about wild turkeys. Let's move on to another bird. The next bird I'm going to talk about is common loon. Common loon, it is a bird of mythology almost. I grew up in, in Oakland, Maine, and we spent every summer at my family's camp on McGraw Pond. Common loon was just a fixture there. The every day, on and off through the day, and then especially in the evening and night, you'd hear the yodeling and howling. Just the most beautifully eerie sound ever. I remember I was taking some sort of a standardized test in elementary school. I don't know what it was all about. But the, the question was, which of the following sounds is frightening? And they listed four or five sounds. You had to choose one of the frightening. One of them, with the, the correct answer, was supposed to be the call of a loon. I'm like, Oh, what's frightening about that? That's beautiful. I, that's not scary at all. I whined and complained to the teacher. I thought that was terribly unfair. But it's all a matter of where you're coming from. Last summer, when I was visiting my brother in Maine and was sleeping on the porch at 1.30 in the morning on July 21st, I woke up and the loons were going crazy. They have this tremolo call and all these eerie calls. It was really cool. And I made this recording. I thought you'd enjoy this. One of my favorite sounds in the whole wide world with lots of fond memories makes me smile every time I hear loons calling. Standardized test writers of the world, come on now, game on, you can do better than that. Common loons in Europe are called Great Northern Diver. Uh, I like that name, but I, loon, common loon is a pretty cool name too, so I'm not sure which I like better. Anyway, it's a common bird where I live now in Washington too, but it just doesn't breed around here. I live in western Washington, and we really don't have breeding loons here, but we do have common loons almost all year. They're certainly harder to find in the breeding season during the summer when the adults uh, go off to breed, but Almost all year, if you look hard around the salt water around here, you can find a common loon. They're, they look way different in the non-breeding season they do during the breeding season. They're more of a, a darkish gray to blackish bird with white underparts, and they don't have the beautiful checkering and incredible uh, head pattern and neck pattern of an adult common loon. But they do have a, a big dagger-like silver to darkish bill that's really unmistakable, and so they're cool. Uh, for beginning birders, Loon identification to species can be challenging in places there are a lot of options. Where I live, we have 
three common and four reasonably common options for loons. And, and it can be a bit of a challenge, especially in flight. There are a couple of things that are helpful for common loon identification. One is they're really big feet. Uh, a common loon in flight has feet so big and legs long enough that almost the whole foot dangles up behind the tail. So if you see a, a large loon in flight with great big feet dangling out behind, all the way up behind their tail, it's almost certainly a common loon. Yellow-billed loon could do that, but they're really uncommon and not likely to not likely to misidentify them just because you're not likely to see them. The other two loons we have are Pacific loon and red-throated loon, and they're smaller. I'm not really going to talk about their identification, but their common loons are our primary loon through a lot of the year around here. Many birders' eyes glass over when they hear the word molt. Molt is uh, the word that describes the growing of new feathers for birds. Birds have to do two things every year. Uh, they have to breed in order to propagate their species, and they have to grow new feathers. Both of these are highly energy-intensive processes, and there are a lot of different strategies birds have. Some birds uh, go through a complete molt right near the breeding ground after they finish breeding. Other birds go off somewhere special to have uh, a molt called a post-breeding dispersal to a molting area. They have molt places that they go to. There's a lot of food. Other birds have different strategies. Loons have a really cool strategy. Loons start their pre-basic molt, the molt into their primary non-breeding plumage, the basic plumage. When you name a molt, it's named for the change of feathers into a plumage. So the basic plumage is a plumage, so it's the pre-basic molt. Well, loons, common loons, have a strategy where they lose all of their flight feathers at once and they can't even fly. How do they manage? Well, they swim really well. And loons swim using their feet primarily. They don't really need a lot of feathers to fly well. And so they capture their food by diving and use their feet for propulsion. So they can get by just fine uh, on salt water and fairly safe areas uh, without flying. And so loons, before breeding, usually in the March to May time frame, go through a complete molt of their flight feathers, uh, their wing feathers, and I think their tail feathers too. Uh, so they become flightless for a month or a little bit longer and, and hang out often in, in, in significant size groups and replace all of their flight feathers. That gives them fresh feathers to go off to their breeding grounds and uh, then they go and they breed and after breeding, they start to molt their body feathers. Usually they stop that until they get to the wintering ground later in the year, replace the rest of them. But not many birds, some ducks, but not many birds, become flightless in the process of molt. Only birds can find a way to survive without flying. Usually swimming birds do that. After they grow their new wing feathers, uh, common loons sometimes migrate to large bodies of water that are fairly near their nesting grounds, and they make reconnaissance flights to where they're going to breed. They'll fly up there every day or two, check it out, and uh, I know from living on McGraw Pond in Maine that literally the day the ice goes out, bam, common loons are there. They just show up like magic. It's like, how did they know to come? Well, I just figured that out. They make reconnaissance flights. They don't somehow magically know when the ice goes out. They check it out, and then they come when the ice goes out. So no secret there, I guess. Another cool thing about loons is that they are beloved in lots of places. Uh, in Maine, where I grew up, uh, there's a special thing called the Maine Loon Count. 
I have a good friend and know several others who participate in the annual loon count on the third Saturday of July of every year. There are about 1,400 trained counters. They use boats to canvas most of the lakes in the state, and they count the loons. I'll leave a link in the uh, podcast notes to the 2020 loon count website, and I'll also put it in the accompanying blog post. But uh, it's really cool that they uh, there are so many people who love their loons that they uh, do an annual census. Seems like loons have been pretty much hanging in there, although it's a little bit of a decline, I think, in recent decades in terms of loon population. They are really quite susceptible to nest failure. They don't walk very well on the ground. Uh, their, their feet are great for swimming, uh, but they're way back on their body and they kind of push themselves forward and flop around on the ground. They're not very good at walking. So they have to make their nests really near the edge of the water. They prefer islands. Uh, they prefer on the leeward side of islands. They prefer islands where not many people or other uh, predators would go to. But they're very prone to flooding because they make the nest right on the edge of the water. If the water levels rise, the nest can flood. Uh, and so they lose their young from that. They can also be lost to coyotes and foxes and raccoons and other birds and lots of things that can uh, steal their uh, egg or baby. Uh, but once they're born, these loons are out of the nest. Baby loons are born, some are precocial, uh, and they uh, within a day or so of being born, they are out on the water with their parents. So cute. If you've seen baby loons, they're uh, often on, the, on their parents' back or hiding under the wing. Uh, and it takes them a while before they can really do too much on their own. By about one week of age, they can dive to the bottom in shallow areas. By about three weeks of age, they can dive and chase fish, although they don't capture very many of them. Uh, and one adult leaves the juveniles at about week 11. The second one usually leaves a week or two later. The juveniles, often with, uh, with all the adults, will often gather in larger bodies of water in a group and then migrate to the wintering ground on their own. Well, enough about loons. We're going to move on to great blue herons. You notice I've been talking about big birds today? Big birds are easy. You know, if you're a beginning birder, there's nothing, nothing uh, to be ashamed about or focusing on the big birds. My first day of birding, my wife, who was kind of my mentor and got me into birding, uh, joked with me that I didn't look at any bird under 12 inches when I was in the Everglades on my first day of birding. Uh, so nothing wrong with uh, studying the big birds first. They, they're big and you can look at them and see them. You don't have to squint. They tend not to hide in the bushes quite so much. So uh, check out your big birds and learn to love them. They're great. Great blue heron is a species a lot like Ruth Bader, Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg goes by RBG. You say RBG, everybody knows what you mean. Well, birders, if you say GBH, you know what they mean. It goes by its initials, GBH, great blue heron. Uh, GBHs are sometimes mistakenly called cranes by non-birders, and they do sort of look like a crane. They've got a long legs and a long neck, uh, but they yeah, cranes are uh, not terribly closely related birds. Uh, they are more gray colored than blue colored. So great blue heron is a little bit uh, odd, but gray heron was taken. It's the, the look-alike heron in Europe uh, for great blue heron. And so great blue heron it is. They're really big. They're 54 inches long, have a 69 inch wingspan, can weigh over six pounds. And like a lot of other long-legged waders, herons, egrets, that sort of thing, they tend to nest in colonies. You may not know, but they nest really high up in trees, usually in a colony. And some of the colonies uh, can be really big. Most of the ones I've seen are like 40 to 100 nests. But according to uh, Birds of North America, or Birds of the World now, uh, they can be colonies of up to 1,000 pairs. Uh, so they can be really big colonies. And they tend to be within a couple of miles of a good source of feeding and tend to be high up in trees. I've noticed quite often 
that a great blue, col great blue heron colony is very close to a nesting bald eagle. And he thought, gosh, those eagles, they're just really taking advantage of these great blue herons. They build a nest right next to a heron rookery so they can just swoop down and get a, a baby heron anytime they want something to eat. Well, it turns out it's probably the other way around. Uh, nesting bald eagles are very territorial. Uh, so if you're a nesting bald eagle, you do not want any other bald eagles than your mate and your babies anywhere near you. Uh, so great blue herons probably have a reproductive advantage by locating their heron rookery near a, a bald eagle nest. They're not the preferred diet, apparently, of bald eagles. They certainly predate the nest sometimes. Uh, but bald eagles are more scavengers, tend to primarily take fish and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and so turns out that by making their heron rookery right next to a, a bald eagle nest, all they have to worry about is the nesting bald eagles. They don't have to worry about marauding uh, groups of uh, other eagles that would come in and uh, decimate their colony. So I thought that was kind of a cool tidbit of information. So if you live near water, you've probably seen great blue herons hunt. You probably think of them as standing still or walking slowly through shallow water, poised to strike, then quickly stabbing out with a long bill into the water to catch a smallish fish. They can catch pretty big fish, too. You, uh, I've seen them swallow pretty doggone big fish. Uh, but And that certainly is a common technique. But they can hunt in a lot of ways. They're another generalist, and they eat a wide variety of foods. In one study in Idaho, up to 40% of the diet was voles, a small mouse-like rodent that lives in the fields. They can also feed while swimming. They can flycatch while standing. They can eat other birds. There's a great uh, photo on the Birds of North America site of a great blue heron eating a least bittern, another uh, uh, wader of the uh, reeds. Uh, and they eat amphibians like frogs and salamanders. So they're very much a generalist, although uh, fish are certainly a big part of their diet. It's by no means their entire diet. There are several subspecies of great blue heron, but I'm really only going to talk about the great white heron of South Florida. The rest of them, honestly, look pretty similar. Uh, at this time, great white heron remains a subspecies of great blue heron. Ardea herodias is the uh, scientific name for great blue heron, and Ardea herodias occidentalis is the white subspecies in South Florida. It's a very different looking subspecies. If you've visited Florida, uh, you can easily confuse this at a glance with other big white waders. There's lots of big white waders in the same areas that the race of great blue heron, great white herons live. Uh, there are great egrets, there are white ibis, there are snowy egrets, there are the white form of reddish egret. Uh, and so check them over. But one of the things that really helps in identification is leg color. Almost all of the other big white waders have dark or black legs. Great white herons have yellowish legs, so that's really helpful. And they've also got this really big bill and they're gigantic. So once you get a feel for it, it's not that hard, but at a glance, it's easy to mistake them. So the next time you're out with a birder, you see them squinting at a distant huge flying bird and they hear a crazy loud croaking sound and they mutter GBH. You'll know what they're talking about. Another very cool and very ubiquitous bird in the United States. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing about some common birds or learning a little more about these five species. You've almost certainly seen most, if not all of them, and now you know a little bit more about them. Again, I'll put up a blog post on the birdbanner.com website where you can see photos of all of these birds and check back to most of the details I've talked about today. Feel free to share this episode with your birding or non-birding friends. I hope to publish another episode on five more breeding birds, and by that time, hope to be recovered enough that I can have a formal guest on.
the Bird Banner Podcast. So until then, good birding, good day. <laughs>